0: Welcome to the I Believe podcast, a podcast created and funded by Cure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. Thanks for being here. couple housekeeping things real quick. If you were not able to attend the virtual seminar that we had, we had the Eye on Mental Health seminar. We had uh, four therapists. Three of them have ocular melanoma themselves. And then we had a life coach who came and they each spoke on various different topics for just navigating your mental health with this diagnosis. If you haven't been able to check out Socio, you can head over to the Socio app. Um, I will make sure that that is up in the comments and it'll also just be in the link in our bio and you can head over to socio go to the event that's titled acis eye on mental health and then you will be able to um see the recordings that we have up from the eye on mental health seminar and those recordings will also be uploaded to our youtube coming up this next week there's five sessions so five 40 to 50 minute sessions and you're welcome to check out those recordings anytime This is Dr. Moser, so I'm going to be introducing him real quick, and then I'm going to let him kind of share a little bit more about himself and his background, and we're going to just have a discussion. If you guys have any questions, um, feel free to drop those over in the chat, and we will take um, 10, 15 minutes at the end, and we'll answer questions as we see them come in. So just to introduce him, Dr. Justin Moser is a medical oncologist and a hematologist and an associate clinical investigator at Honor Health Research Institute, he is the clinical assistant professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix and an adjunct faculty member at the Translational Genomics Research Institute or TGen. He is an expert in the treatment of melanoma and other skin cancers, and he co-leads the Cutaneous Oncology Tumor Site Strategy Group for Honor Health. He is also has a strong passion for developing new treatments for patients with rare cancers such as uveal melanoma squamous squamous cell carcinoma and Merkel cell carcinoma, as well as basal cell carcinoma. And patients with these obviously have fewer treatment options available. So he is someone who tries his best to come up with new options or find those options for them. And that is going to be part of what we are going to talk about today. But just kind of as we now know who he is, I wanted to give him a chance to just tell him, like, you know, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit and why you, why you started with oncology?
1: Yeah. So thanks so much, Danae. So, um, you know, I'm Dr. Moser at Honor Health Research Institute here in Scottsdale. I've been in Scottsdale for about two and a half years. I was at the University of Utah in Salt Lake before that, and then in Minnesota where I grew up prior to that. So, in terms of you know what got me into oncology, when I was in medical school, I I've always been very interested in immunology, and as we all know, immunology is becoming very related to oncology, and so I kind of had a peak interest in oncology and being involved some way early in medical school. But towards later in medical school, I realized that oncology patients are a patient population that even if you don't have treatments for, if you can provide good supportive care and pain management, you can really do a lot of benefits. So it was really kind of the science and just the patient population that really pulled me into an oncology. And then it was just kind of happenstance that kind of pulled me into melanoma and uveal melanoma. One of the oncologists I worked with at Iowa, Dr. Milhem, who really convinced me I wanted to go into medical oncology, you know, had a couple of UV melanoma patients that we treated together. And then when I went to um, my residency program, we had there was a research project in UV melanoma that I jumped in, and that just kind of spurred, you know, the research interest that's kind of stuck with me my entire career so far.
0: That's awesome. Um, what kind of drew you to more rare cancers? Why, you know, I mean, I, I feel like cancer in and, of, in and of itself is kind of just a, well, we feel like it's rare, but then it seems like it happens to so many people when you have it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was really just who I had the luck of working with. So when I was in med school, working with Dr. Milheim at University of Iowa, who kind of got me interested in the melanoma space, and then initially UV melanoma, I worked with, uh, actually, when I was a medical student, went and um, watched a plaque therapy With the ocular oncologist there, I think Chet Culver is his name, if I recall correctly. And so that kind of what got me interested in uveal melanoma. And then in residency, there was a research project that I jumped on. And so that kind of got me into the more rare cancers.
0: Okay, gotcha. So as far as your patient demographic here in Scottsdale, how many, like, I guess maybe what percentage would you say of your patients here in Scottsdale do you see that are uveal melanoma? Just if you had a rough estimate.
1: Percentage, I don't know, but between, you know, people who are newly diagnosed that we're seeing for counseling before treatment, people who are following after treatment and people who develop metastatic disease, we're seeing, you know, we have a handful of patients a week. I'm probably one or two at minimum patients a week that we're seeing. Yeah, probably, actually probably more than that, probably like three to four patients we're seeing a week, either newly diagnosed or in follow-up or currently on treatment.
0: Okay. So I guess that feels, that feels like way more... I felt like way more people than I would have anticipated, but my goodness just goes to show when you like are suddenly aware of what is going on or, you know, are part of a community of people that have something going on, then it feels a lot more noticeable, like a lot more people have it. Okay. So you have been here in the Phoenix camp area for two, did you say two and a half or is it closer to two years?
1: Two and a half years.
0: Yeah. Okay. So two and a half years. um, And we wanted to talk, I know, just a little bit about the benefits of seeing, you know, specifically someone who is familiar with uveal melanoma. So do you have maybe a few, a few reasons that you would consider important reasons why, if you have been diagnosed or are newly diagnosed with ocular melanoma, why it would be important to have follow-up care and monitoring with an ocular or a, a uveal oncologist and not just an ocular oncologist?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important to see both. You know, um, in terms of the ophthalmologists, the people who actually do the eye surgeries, you know, there's the people who've done special fellowship training in ocular oncology, and a lot of times they do retinal, uh, some, or retinal training as well. And then there's onco- or the ophthalmologists who have some retinal training that do a little bit of oncology on the side. And I think it's important to make sure you get with an oncology trained ophthalmologist or someone who has, who's done it long enough that they're up to date. Just because you know doing the plaque therapy is technically it can be technical, and doing the biopsy can be technical as well. But also the follow up, you know, to make to monitor for side effects of the radiation therapy, like retinopathies and stuff that can uh, come up a years or t- you know two three years down the road. It's really important to be with someone who's very skilled in that, and you know can monitor that, know when to start prophylactic injections if they're needed, etc. So I think it's really important to see. The ocular oncologist, in terms of the ophthalmologist, but then it's also really important to see, you know, a medical oncologist who's comfortable and experienced in uveal melanoma, and that's because this is, as we know, more of a rare disease, which means there's not as strong rules as there are for other cancers. Scans for people, um, you know, with thin tumors of the eye, or people who have Castle testing, which is kind of in the middle range, you know, people who do really good prognosis. We know we don't have to do scans that often people with really high recurrence, we know we have to, should probably do them fairly often. But if you're in the middle, you know, how often do you do the scans? And that's just really a big question in the field. And that's why if you talk to a couple of different oncologists, you may get different answers. And so I think making sure you follow with someone who kind of understands the intricacies of it to really get the best recommendation um, is important. And then, you know, should this ever come back, and hopefully it doesn't, Then you're plugged into someone who knows kind of the network of uveal melanoma medical oncologists, who knows the clinical trial and treatment landscape and how rapidly that's changing. It has the connections to reach out to colleagues at other institutions to help really find the best option for patients. And options can be limited, as we know.
0: I, I like what you said, because I feel like it's it can be kind of just kind of disarming. I think that like, oh, this cancer's in the eye. So we just need to see someone who specializes in the eye. But I think that, like you said, it's so important to be plugged into that resource and that network. Um, And someone who has a background in uveal melanoma is someone who can do that. So how would you, you know, I I hear from patients a lot who they're like, I don't know who to see. My oncologist is just a, a, you know, a regular skin melanoma oncologist. And they don't, they don't believe me when I say that I need to have these kinds of scans done. For a patient maybe in those kinds of positions where they kind of have this, I think we've talked about it with some patients before that like there's this kind of a little bit of a white coat syndrome or maybe some fear or some some hesitation as a patient to like come forward and say, no, this is what is researched and proven. I need you to look at this and trust me and to advocate for ourselves, like with a doctor who maybe isn't as familiar, how would you suggest that they, you know, approach that or would you suggest just finding a different oncologist to begin with?
1: Yeah. So... And I tell this for people, for for everything, when it comes to, you know, what type of doctor should I see? It's really any person out there that you're seeing for your medical care should want to do what's best for you. So if there's hesitancy of don't go see a second opinion or this is my way or no way, you know, that's just a red flag in general. Always, you know, work with someone who's who's willing to discuss other options with you and open to have you seen other people or even working with you know other oncologists even if you don't physically you know go to one so for example there's some oncologists <clears throat> medical oncologists that have a couple of uveal melanoma patients in surveillance and they just call me and say hey this is what i'm thinking and i'll say yeah i think that's a good plan you know if anything shows up on scans or there's any questions call me right so that patient doesn't necessarily have to come see me because they have a great medical oncologist who's willing to reach out and get guidance and ask and stuff like that so really it's just you know asking them if, you know, if there's someone they can connect with, if they don't know anyone who's specialized in uveal melanoma, then just say, it would be okay if I see a melanoma doctor to establish care with one, have you be my primary oncologist, but just kind of check in with them to kind of help set the plan and maybe see you at transition points. You know, most people should say no. And if you have an oncologist who says, no, I don't want you seeing anyone else for a second opinion, then I think it is time to find a new doctor.
0: Okay. I love that. I think that's, I think that's just. Um... I don't know, sometimes I feel like we tell each other that, but I think it helps to hear another doctor say like, no, if your doctor isn't listening to you, it's okay to want that second opinion and to go elsewhere. Rare cancer, but there are more and more people involved in the research um, and in the field. So what, like as far as finding a uveal melanoma oncologist, do you know of any kind of specific resources other than just word of mouth for really finding someone in your local area? Because I know like for me, like Dr. Curley, my ocular oncologist was able to tell me, these are the people that I refer patients to. This is where to go. Is there, is there any kind of like a, a way to search that that's effective or maybe more helpful than Google? Sometimes I feel like that doesn't always help.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the resources that you guys have developed on a Cure site and Some of the other places on finding uveal melanoma doctor are great. So going to those websites, putting in your zip code or whatever it is and finding stuff that can be helpful. I also think, you know, ask the opinion of the ocular oncologist, you know, the eye doctor who does the plaques, most likely if they're doing the plaques, they know someone who's good in the field or connected to someone. So feel free to reach out and ask them who to see um, because they should have a good understanding of who's experienced and who's comfortable dealing with uveal melanoma in their area that they work.
0: Okay. Awesome. So as far as um, traveling goes there, I know that just because of, because of the nature of how rare this is and how rare kind of the field is, if someone say has a harder time finding a medical oncologist or a uveal oncologist period in their local area, would you really encourage them still to travel for monitoring and for regular checkups, even if it's maybe a little bit more taxing on the
1: traveling I would say, talk to your doctor, just like you said, you know, talk to the medical oncologist who's in your community or who you work with or have a relationship with and, you know, discuss it with them. Cause some, you know, they may know someone who does uveal melanoma and may tell you, you know, actually I've already called, you know, this person who does uveal melanoma and discussed it and they recommended this. And if they have a close working relationship, then it may not, you may not need to travel if there's that strong connection between your local medical oncologist and someone that they can ask questions to. So I definitely would talk about it first um, because why travel if you don't have to? You know, I've had a patient who, I think, flew across the country to see someone else and then came back and he's like, oh, I saw them, they didn't have trials. I'm like, oh, I wish you would have told me that. I had a meeting with them last week and I already asked. Like, I could have saved you a flight. So always discuss it with your doctor. And if they don't have that working relationship, then maybe check in at, at least once a year or something like that or video visits if they're, you know, we, we saw an increase in video visits with the pandemic. Hopefully yes. those stick around and those laws that allow us to do that are you know, continue. We'll just have to see, but that's always an option as well.
0: So it kind of sounds like overall, the main reasons to see a uveal melanoma oncologist are, you know, to find someone who understands that for monitoring purposes, because for follow-up scans, we know that like, this is not this is not a cancer that we can just treat the eye and then never check in. <laughs> we have to follow up frequently and often for a pretty long time. I felt like when I first met you, you were like, you're going to see me for like a long time. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to see each other for a pretty long time. And I feel like that can sometimes feel, you know, maybe overwhelming, but again, having that resource and that kind of plug into clinical trial research and to knowing someone who's in, um, in the network is going to be beneficial, whether it's for adjuvant therapy, um, or for you know post uh, spread or metastatic therapies. So as far as the clinical trials go, maybe just both adjuvant and and uh, maybe we can cover both of these. But as far as the clinical trials go, how do you as as a doctor like go about recommending those to patients? Like I mean I know it's very unique to each patient, but how do you kind of go about that process with them?
1: Yeah, so it's hard right now because we don't have a lot of adjuvant trials in Arizona or frankly just around Arizona. I think the closest adjuvant trials to us right now are Texas and California. And so when we see people who are high risk for recurrence, you know, the class 2Bs and Prame positive, I will discuss it with them. And some patients go and find out and go and travel for the adjuvant trials. Other people decide it's not really worth it. You know, as far as I know right now, I think there's one, potentially two enrolling adjuvant trials for melanoma. There's the trial of sunitinib and valproic acid out of Thomas Jefferson University. And then there was a big multi-center trial of nivolumab and ipilimumab. And I believe that's a um, completed enrollment, but they're gonna start a second arm using nivolumab and relatumab, a new like three inhibitor that we hope will be approved for melanoma soon. I I haven't heard that that's fully accruing right now, But those are the only two adjuvant trials that I'm aware of. And I've discussed those with patients and offered them referrals to those other institutions to discuss them.
0: As far as like kind of just referring those, I guess you could, you could kind of say like you're a little bit of like a, a go between, like if you are plugged into the research yourself, like even if you're not personally doing one of those trials, you still have access to the information. And so you can refer a patient to go and access that information or do more research and see if it would be a good fit for them if it's available. Is that kind of what I'm hearing?
1: Yep, absolutely. And sometimes we'll just, you know, we're, we're well connected. So I'll just email them and say, Hey, is this trial still open? Um, and, and if it's open, great. We'll send, we'll refer a patient there. If they tell me no, it's closed, then we we save the patient a trip, but just like you said, you know, connecting patients, that's one of the things we do a lot of, you know, my wife will joke that 10% of my job is just being an air traffic controller, people where they need to go.
0: So we have a comment here that I wanted to just draw our attention to this. This one said LAG-3 was, I didn't think that LAG-3 was an adjuvant trial. So is it currently a newer adjuvant trial?
1: So there's the LAG-3 trial that University of Miami is running, which is for metastatic. And then I was told that the, I, I believe an adjuvant trial using that same drug is coming. I don't think it's open yet. I think okay but I haven't had an update on that in a couple months. So something may have changed, but you're right. The one that's actively open and running is for metastatic.
0: Okay. So as far as, um, maybe the, the metastatic realm, like say you have a patient who comes in patient Susie, who they had their eye treated say three, four years ago, they were class, uh, you know, praying positive and somewhere in the classes of their biopsy and they on their scans, they were, you know, something was found. What would be kind of your, your process for helping them, Figure out treatment. Just kind of maybe a general process.
1: Yeah. So for people who um, you know were concerned that you know potentially the melanoma has come back, what I typically do is I typically have the discussion of you know this is what it means if it comes back, and we start the discussions because we know that if you kind of see a patient once and give them all the information, they're not going to remember much. So I try to start those conversations early, just so there's multiple time points that we can discuss them mm-hmm. to try to get the most information. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I, we do is we start kind of doing broad testing early to look for options. So, you know, sometimes with cancer treatment, we do a biopsy and then down the road, maybe we do another biopsy and send it for genetic testing to look for, you know, what deep mutations or whatever are driving the tumor. I tend to do that right away on all UV melanoma patients just to start getting all the information possible. And then typically we start testing them or testing their HLA type, which is that new blood type that's important for Tebendifus, which is a treatment option for UV melanoma that we're hoping gets approved next month, you know, we'll, we'll get the final word from the FDA next month, but hopefully it's approved. So we start sending all that testing and all that information. So hopefully, you know, a week or two after the biopsy, we can give the diagnosis, but also start developing a plan on where to go.
0: That is helpful. So as far as clinical trials go, I know we had talked a little bit about this before, and you mentioned the Tebby drug that is hopefully going to be FDA approved soon, and we had talked. We had talked a little while about how sometimes it can feel frustrating as a patient if you have already maybe had your doctor. Like I know you, you and Dr. Sato and multiple other uveal melanoma oncologists will will ask for early HLA positive um, positive testing, so that you know even if you don't have metastatic disease, you can know kind of ahead of time whether or not you're positive for that. Just because you know may as well have the information if we're going to need it in the future. And patients who maybe are not positive, and so they wouldn't qualify for, say, the Prame drug or for the Tebby drug, they would, you know, kind of sit in that and feel frustrated or feel maybe a little bit of hopelessness around the whole, well, is there even anything that is out there for me? What would you say to kind of to that patient who maybe feels like there isn't something that is showing good success rates that they know of?
1: There's absolutely options and stuff out there for you. So, you know, if you don't have the HLA type for Tebenda We still have the immune therapies, right? And there's big debate in the field right now for if, you know, Tebendifus gets approved next month, what is the best frontline treatment? Is it combination therapy with nivolumab and ipilimumab or Optivo and Yervoy? Or is it Tebendifus? You know, and there's debate in the field of who's going to use what first, because that's an unknown which means if you don't have the right HLA type or the right HLA type for tebendafrost there's still a really good option in nivolumab and pembrolizumab because that may be the option regardless you know you know if that doesn't work there are a mountain of new treatment options in clinical trials that are coming so there's a lot of new immune therapies that we're starting to see potentially have activity in cutaneous melanoma and in theory or in at least in preclinical models potentially uveal melanoma as well so we're seeing lots of new cytokine therapies, and there's been some trials of cytokine therapies where they've shown shrinkage in melanoma patients. And then there's a lot of other types of treatments too. So for example, I think last year at ASCO, there was a phase one trial of an MDM2 inhibitor where they showed that a patient with melanoma had a response and a couple others had stable disease. And so that trial has expanded and is looking for, you know, looking to kind of further Understand what what the activity of that drug is in uveal melanoma, but there's also a lo- also a lot of other trials out there that do the similar things to the PRAME trial and the HLA restricted trials that you talked about. Mm-hmm. There are other cell therapy trials that target PRAME that are aren't HLA restricted. We have one of those here at the research institute that you know we view as an option for our patients. Thankfully, we haven't had to put anyone on it yet. But there's a lot of these new new drugs that are still in early phase testing that maybe haven't declared, I think, publicly, like we want to go into uveal melanoma, but there's really good preclinical reasoning and rationale and support for why it could be active in uveal melanoma, that is a great option for patients that are out there.
0: Okay. So for someone who maybe doesn't fully understand the way that a clinical trial works, I guess I'm wondering, and you can, I guess maybe you can correct this if i'm messing anything up but i feel like i remember we talked a little bit about this and i just had mentioned I, I had tried to kind of make sense of it in my own brain so basically when a clinical trial happens they say okay we've got this drug and then they or this you know this new therapy that we think could work and these are the reasons we think it could work this is the, the pre-research and so we're going to start testing it on cancers a b and c and here's the clinical trials for those ones and then there's more clinical research that happens kind of in the background of testing it in other ways before testing it on patients that says, well, if it was helpful with this type, is it maybe, you know, this is kind of similar or this one behaves similarly to say uveal melanoma or, you know, cancer R or whatever, then they're going to test it kind of in the research labs first and then say, okay, well, we, we want to slate this to be on the, on the the list of let's find patients for this, but we're not there yet. So, How does how does a patient then, or I guess what what do you do if if you know of something like that that you know is slated for uveal melanoma research, and you have someone who you think would be a really good fit for that? Like, what do you do as their doctor to kind of advocate for that, or to see if that is a possibility?
1: Yeah, great question. And so there's many different paths you know, kind of um, the trials can take. Some trials will start and will say this is a phase one trial specifically for uveal melanoma, and we definitely have some of those. Uh, like idea they market it and it's very well known online. There's other trials that say, you know, we have a drug for a new type of immune cell that blocks immune type, new type of immune cell. And for example, M2 macrophages. This is a type of immune cell that supports cancer growth and there's fairly good data supporting its role in supporting uveal melanoma. And so there's trials of M2 macrophage inhibitors saying, we're testing in everything but at some time we're gonna go into UV melanoma. So we wanna start getting those patients. They just haven't kind of publicly declared it. And then other trials where it gets approved and then someone says, well, can I repurpose that from one cancer to UV melanoma? So there's many different paths, but I think, you know, that um, how to navigate those is really, I think, through your physician. And that's why it's important to get plugged into a UV melanoma doctor who knows the landscape Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, we definitely have the trials that are specifically for UV melanoma that are on, you know, they do press releases and stuff like that. And, um, but we also have a lot of these trials that say, we want to go into UV melanoma someday. It's just kind of too early, but we'll take those patients now and we're willing to you know take them if needed.
0: Okay. So I guess when you had mentioned that to me, that like the the feeling that I got was just like, okay, even if it doesn't look like there's this super well-talked about Thing that could work for me, say, if my cancer were to spread, or for you know my friend, then it's not impossible. I guess is what I'm hearing is that there's there's so much happening in the research field that you you don't necessarily have to go into finding out you have metastatic spread and feel hopeless and feel like there's nothing for me because there's absolutely.
1: so many avenues. <laughs> yep, absolutely.
0: Okay, well, I hope that is reassuring to to some people who I know have been recently diagnosed with metastatic disease. I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, as far as your own research with um, what you do at Honor Health and hematology, what are some of the projects or some things that you're currently working on in your kind of your sphere and your location here?
1: Yeah, so we, in terms of our location, we're a big drug development site, so we test a lot of new cancer drugs. So a lot of what we do is kind of discuss with new companies early, being one of the first sites to kind of test their drugs. So a lot of what I personally do is when I meet with these companies and we're starting the trials, I will kind of put uvrim melanoma on their radar. You know, there's one of my colleagues jokes to, (laughs) likes to introduce me by joking, saying if we leave you in a room alone with Dr. Moser, he's gonna convince you to do a trial in uvrim melanoma because it's kind of something you're just always advocating for and saying, oh, could we do this drug and pull it in? And so a lot of what we do is you know, we treat patients and, you know, we we offer the standard treatments like, you know, nivolumab and ipilimumab, and we'll offer Bendifest when that's approved. But for patients who those don't work for, we have a lot of clinical trials and we have the standard trials like IDEA and some of the uve melanoma specific ones, but really making sure we curate those other options for patients in case they don't qualify or those other ones don't work for them. The other thing we do is we do have a partnership with TGen, the Translational Genomics Research Institute, which is a basic science hub here in Phoenix. And so we do do some translational research with them. So a lot of our patients that we are doing biopsies on to get diagnoses will consent them to take their tissue to do research testing so we can try to do expanded genomics, expanded lab studies to really try to understand the biology of this disease better and really try to find new targets someday that we can try to pull in.
0: Okay. So just lots of, lots of extra layers of research happening in addition to just kind of keeping that communication line open with patients and making sure they're monitored well. Okay. Well, I don't have anything specific that I have on my list of like things to to ask you, um, but do you have anything else that you feel like would be beneficial for the audience to hear?
1: No, I think we covered most of the things. I think the big thing is, you know, communicating with your doctor, you know, working with them to get connected to a uveal melanoma specialist if that's physically going and seeing them or just having them have a relationship with one that they can bounce ideas off of and discuss stuff. And then just being aware that there are a lot of new um, anti-cancer therapies and specifically immune therapies entering clinical trials right now um, that have a lot of good rationale or potential in uveal melanoma. So there's a, there's a wave of new options coming. So although it can feel like it's helpless. There's people are definitely working on stuff and stuff is coming and there are options down the road.
0: Like you said earlier, it's so important to be plugged into someone who is connected to that so that they can, they can offer that reassurance. Because I, (laughs) I know I've asked you for that multiple times myself. Like, can you just tell me there's something that will happen? Like, what is the plan? Is there a plan? Like, because I think as patients, we just have so much uncertainty that we just, we need, sometimes we need that reassurance that like, yes, there's, there's things we can do. Um, and everything is going to be unique to each person, unique to that doctor and what they recommend, uh, but there are th- you know there are things that we can go forward with. We have a question from Katie who is asking if the tibentifusp is only for metastatic patients.
1: Yeah, so if it gets approved next month, it will only be approved for patients with metastatic or recurrent disease. there is I've heard rumors that potentially they would do a trial in the advent setting. Um, I, have, I don't know if that's gonna happen or when that would happen or anything like that. But if it gets approved next month, it will only be approved for metastatic disease.
0: So as far as the, the research goes around, say uh, the formulation of a new drug, you guys mentioned the Honor Health that there, you help with um, testing a lot of these newer drugs that, that are offered as an idea or a solution to a cancer treatment. When they get FDA approved, I guess sometimes I've, I've kind of looked at it as it's like, okay, well it's locked in. It's only for these HLA one people, but is there room for then once it's approved, do doctors want to do more research on it? I guess, or on kind of forms of the to to te- <laughs> I can never say that drugs so that they can see like which ways it could be tweaked. Like is that kind of how drug research works? They say this drug works, so now we're gonna make a new version of it that, you know, we're gonna tweak it a little for this other type of genomic makeup.
1: Yeah, so once it's approved, you can, you know, a lot of people do off-label things. So do treatment outside of the FDA approved indication. You know, in terms of uh, you know, could you use this drug for patients who don't have the HLA AO201? in theory, but the drug was specifically designed to work for those patients and specifically designed, which means it won't work if you don't have that. So I think we might see some trials of new combinations, like what could we combine this drug with? Hmm. How could we use it differently? Like potentially, you know, to prevent recurrence rather than at recurrence. But yeah, outside of that, yeah, I think it's gonna still stick within the HLA-AO2 patient.
0: Do they, like when, when someone successfully creates like immunocor creates the Tebby, you know, drug for metastatic disease. Do they, do they typically like in the formulation of a a new, a new treatment, do they then take that research and then like kind of try to formulate, maybe not Tebby, but like something else, like using the same theory and some of the same ideas to see what else they can come up with just markers. Yeah. uh, So
1: yeah, I think that's what we're seeing with the PREM study, right? It's, you know, they had a drug, Tabendifus targets a different protein, the GPC100, and now they have another trial targeting PRAME. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing. I assume someone is looking at trying to create a similar drug, you know, that would cover all patients and not just the ones with the right HLA type. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not aware of that, but I'm assuming someone is doing that and taking those next steps.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, I think before we open it up for questions for just a couple minutes, um, I wanted to just ask, as you know, as a doctor who sees lots of the lots of patients with rare cancers, do you have anything that you would suggest that they do to support themselves, or just um, things that they should you know could do if they're if they're really struggling, like emotionally or mentally?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things I think a lot of patients, a lot of my patients, have found helpful is the patient organizations like a Cure Insight, especially. I can't remember if it's Tuesday or Thursday afternoon, the Zoom call. Um,
0: Yeah,
1: I've had a lot of patients find a lot of, you know, comfort in that and knowledge and understanding and even finding a community. So I think getting involved with the patient organizations like a cure insight is really helpful.
0: Plug, plug, come hang out with us. Okay, let's go ahead and open the floor for questions. I can see just a couple over here in the comments. So if you guys have questions, we'll give maybe the next three minutes, go ahead and type those questions in if you're listening live, and then uh, we'll let Dr. Moser take the remainder of these questions and we will wrap it up for the afternoon. Yes, Sharon, he's, he's located in Arizona. He's in Scottsdale. Um, Let's see. So this question down here says, where are you concerning metabolic approach? Um, And she followed that up with blocking, like blocking several, several pathways and combining the metabolic strategies with tebi or Epinevo?
1: Yeah. So, you know, blocking the metabolic approach, we've tried that kind of previously with uveal melanoma, a lot with the MEK inhibitors and the selumetinib and stuff that we tried previously um, with kind of limited luck. And that, that might be more pathway approach rather than metabolic approach. So it may not be exactly what you're asking, but you're right. We are starting to see more metabolomics come in anti-cancer therapies. Um, I'm not aware of a lot of metabolic targeting drugs for uveal melanoma other than, um, you know, there are new drugs targeting the different proteins, right? So we know the IDEA study has the drug blocking the PKC inhibitor and the, with its different combinations that they've reported. Um, so I think we are starting to see more of those, especially as we're seeing more and more targeted, targeted therapy, for lack of a better term. And targeted therapy, meaning it blocks a protein and be more targeted, meaning it kind of more cleanly binds what we want it to without binding what we don't want it to. Because drugs have toxicity when they bind stuff we don't want them to. The side activity is what causes all the toxicity. So I think we we will start seeing later this year some new pills like PKC inhibitors that maybe are more specific and potentially more potent and less side effects. And so I think those are coming. Those are just probably a little bit later than some of the new immune therapies that we're seeing coming to the clinic right now.
0: And I could be wrong. And so um Mir- Mirjam, if I'm saying that correctly, if I am if I'm kind of misinterpreting your question here, then feel free to clarify. But when I hear metabolic approach, I guess I hear like food because I know the metabolism system is food. So would you you know, would you suggest to patients or to you know to any of your patients like Make sure they're fueling their body well to, you know, use cancer-fighting foods.
1: What I tell people is, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can find out there about eat this food and not this food. At the end of the day, we don't have great data on any of it because it's not as highly studied. But the best data we have and the consistent data is just living a healthy lifestyle. So high fiber, high fruits, high vegetables, less processed foods. That's the best data that we have. Um, And then the the thing I always tell patients, too, is... You know, um, cancer treatment's never a time to lose weight. That's never a time to start a weight loss program. So eat what you need to, to maintain your weight, to keep you strong and healthy, to get through the treatments.
0: Okay, that totally makes sense. Um, And when you say treatments, I'm going to kind of just assume that you're talking someone who's in metastatic treatment, but would you also recommend someone who's just kind of in the in-between and waiting and hoping that it never spreads? Or obviously a healthy lifestyle is going to help you no matter
1: what is
0: the, the year away from weight loss more for someone who's in metastatic treatment, I guess is what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, absolutely, so it's on the metastatic treatment. We know not, we don't have data specifically for uveal melanoma, but in other cancers, we know that if you get treated and you're you know, disease free and we're just trying to prevent it, the cancer from coming back, that getting to a healthy weight, being active, eating you know, um, a balanced diet, all of those things can be beneficial. Now the benefit is modest, right? It's not a home run. Yes. But there is a benefit there. And so absolutely.
0: Well, and really at the end of the day, like eating healthy, exercising, being active, all of those things are things that are gonna, they're going to help you feel better as a person every day. And whether it guarantees you're going to be cancer-free for the rest of your life or not, if you feel better every day doing it, then why not? Let's see. Sharon is asking, does sugar play a big role in ocular melanoma? So do you know of any research that shows... I mean, I guess in general, there's, you know, like you said, there's lots of that, that stuff out there that says, well, if you eat sugar, it's going to make the cancer grow. Can you speak to any of that specifically researched or is that more just kind of a cultural thing or healthy lifestyle <laughs> plug?
1: In terms of uveal melanoma, I'm not aware of any data, you know, and other cancers that we see eating the Kind of normal sugar versus high sugar. The data is really not great. There is a lot of studies out there now looking at the ketogenic diet, so a very much no sugar approach, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that's beneficial. That stuff is just study- starting right now, and not specifically in uveal melanoma. But again, you know, going on a no sugar diet if you're going to lose weight and start severe and losing muscle mass and stuff like that during treatment, you know that that's can complicate things as well. Yes,
0: yeah. no, for sure that makes sense. So essentially take good care of your body. And if you're in treatment or beginning treatment, still take good care of your body, but don't do it with the focus of, I have to lose weight because your body needs to focus on surviving. Yep. This comment is BAP1 and GNA11 are oxfos high. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So there's some um, RNA. So there's some papers where they looked at the RNA signatures of uveal melanoma in the liver meds versus cutaneous melanoma liver mets. And one of the differences between the two is they found that there was a higher oxidative phosphorylation signature in uveal melanoma liver mets as compared to cutaneous liver mets. And I'm a, that's at least the paper that I'm aware of. You know, Miriam may be thinking, may, Miriam may be referencing something that I'm not aware of, so I apologize if it's not specifically answering the question. So there is data that suggests that oxidative phosphorylation is higher in uveal melanoma. I'm not aware of any data that shows how we can target that or how we can kind of take advantage of that to make it a liability in terms of treating the cancer as of yet. But they're probably doing those studies since we just found out that it's high.
0: Well, I don't see any other questions coming in. So uh, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Moser, for your time and just kind of wrap this up with maybe just a general question where if people are wanting to research clinical trials, do you recommend like, is it is it helpful as a patient, I guess, to go to clinicaltrials.gov and just try to search it? Or is it most effective to go to your doctor and have your doctor do the research or tell you where to go?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, always start with your doctor. Keep them in the discussion because they may be doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes that you're not aware of. The other thing though is going online can be very helpful. I know I've had patients have luck um, with some clinical trial search websites online. And then I also know, I think, the National Cancer Institute or the NIH website, if you Google uveal melanoma clinical trials, they actually have a list that's up there as well. So I think kind of doing both approaches is good.
0: And I just barely thought of this, but are you familiar, I think doc, I think uh, Melody mentioned this to you, but are you, are you familiar with our insight registry? And as far as that patient registry goes, is that something that you feel like as a doctor that you would encourage patients, like go get on that registry so that that data, that data is there and can be utilized in the future?
1: Yeah, so I just recently learned about that data when Melody um, kind of mentioned it when I met with her last month. So I think that is an interesting database. You know, one of the things that hinders us from treating melanoma well is kind of the lack of information because it is so rare. So I think, you know, if you're able, you know, going online and contributing your data is a great way to try to, you know, support the community and really try to move stuff forward. You know, it may not... um, change anything in the next couple of years, but just getting that understanding of the disease is only going to be helpful. It's never going to hurt down the road.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time and for just this discussion. I feel like those of, those of us who were able to come in and listen, found it really helpful, but you know, kind of just to recap, like it's so important to see your ocular oncologist and also a uveal melanoma oncologist, or at least be connected, you know, through your doctors and to, you know, just trust that there's lots of research happening. There's lots of things that are going to be up and coming and to, again, be plugged into the network through a uveal melanoma oncologist who can help with that research and to just continue, continue being aware and kind of plugged into what is going on online, like through uh, patient support groups, like the Acuren site. So, um, yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add. Um, I guess I can let you let you say farewell.
1: great chatting with you and thanks everyone for attending.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. We will have this recording up on our YouTube. And then of course it'll stay here on Facebook. And then if you stay tuned, we'll have it on the podcast as well. Um, probably within the next three to four weeks. So just know that that's coming. And if you haven't listened to the most recent episodes on the podcast, more are added every month, and we will make sure to get these recordings to you as well. Dr. Major.
1: Great. Thanks.
0: All right. Thank you. I'll let you guys back to the rest of your afternoon. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks all. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around. OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at a cure Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.